This is Thoughts from the Metal Cavern, where only one opinion matters, and it's not yours. G'day there. How's your day been? Yeah, mine's probably been the same. But seeing as you have bothered to go to your podcast provider and choose this podcast to listen to, I guess I'd better expand on the day at hand. So this is what I've found interesting in the last day or so. This is the Almanac Report on Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. In recent times, there has been a section of the cricketing media suggesting that the One Day International, or ODI, is on borrowed time and that it will be only Test Cricket and T20 Cricket that will remain down the track. Now, from an Australian perspective, our national cricket team are playing like they have forgotten how to play a 50-over form of the game, that it requires a different set of skills from the other formats, and that sometimes different personnel are required to play it. Over the last week and a half, we've seen a worrying trend. Having completely overpowered Zimbabwe in the first two matches of this six-match series in the top end, Australia then collapsed improbably in their batting in the third match, which allowed Zimbabwe to register their first ever victory over Australia in this country. And then in the first match against New Zealand, the top order batting was once again completely undone by the swinging ball, and the team only registered a narrow victory thanks to their impressive middle order coming to the fore once again. Now, we all know that I am wrong at least as often as I am right when it comes to cricketing matters, and that my opinions can often be full of bullet holes within moments of uttering them. But if you'd like to hear my thoughts on where the team may have gone right or wrong, and where we may go down the track when it comes to building towards the ODI World Cup in India next year, then feel free to tune in to this episode and find out just how mistaken I can be. All of that is for discussion on this episode of The Casual Mancatter, here on the podcast that has less regular listeners than the times Aaron Finch must change his front pad, Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Hi there, regular, well, listener, probably rather than the plural, <laughs> and thanks for tuning in to another fabulously cricketing episode of Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. Getting to the stage where I should just change the name of this podcast back to, say, The Casual Man Catter, because most of the stuff I do is on cricket, and most of it's wrong, which is what most people think of the man cat. They think it's wrong, even though it's in the rules. Anyway, let's uh, not go down that track. Let's talk about the last two one-day internationals that Australia played. Now, the first two we covered in a couple of episodes in recent times, and Australia won them both fairly convincingly and looked to be well on top of a Zimbabwe team that was 
obviously not up to the task. Well, that all changed on uh, Saturday last uh, in Game 3, where Australia won the toss. Well, sorry, they didn't win the toss. The Zimbabwe won the toss. And they sent Australia in a bat, which was a good thing because Australia had chased in both those first two games and they needed to, to find out how they would go batting first. In this crazy world we live in where so many teams in so many formats of the game believe that chasing is the way to go about winning games. And it, that's okay in regards to just getting off the track a little bit. That's okay in regards to cricket. Uh, the mentality has always been, or I was always brought up to believe it, and I've been teaching kids that I coach to believe it, that batting first is what you want to do. You want to win the toss and bat, set a total, put the opposition under pressure, and bowl them out. Now, in this day and age, that's not necessarily the case. Teams seem to feel, especially in the shorter forms, but England obviously are showing this in uh, their test matches in recent times, that what they want to do is send the opposition in and whatever they get, believe that their batting is good enough to chase it down. Now, so Australia batted first in that third one day and it's an early morning pitch with you know, a bit of spice in it, but it was also holding. So it was a 9.45 start, which is very unusual for one day cricket in this day and age. Test matches overseas, yes, they start early to get in the day before the sun goes down. But generally, all white ball cricket is played afternoon, evening. So it's a different way to go. And New Zimbabwe found that batting first in those first two games. They were unable to cope with uh, the Australian bowling. But you would have thought that Australia experienced. We've got good heads on our shoulders. They will know how to play. Well, that was wrong. And there's no doubt that the pitch and the conditions and the Zimbabwe bowlers needed to be treated with more respect than what the Australian bat, batsmen did. Now, it was a 50-over game, not a 20-over game. So after we saw a couple of wickets fall, surely you would say to yourself, all right, let's take 10 to 15 overs, let's get ourselves in, let's see off the opening bowlers, and let's build an innings, and then see how we're going later on in the match. But none of the Australians did that. Warner, the one exception. Now, he'd been a bit spluttery in the first two games, but he was hitting the ball very nicely in this game and ended up getting 94 before he was finally dismissed. Uh, and without that 94, well, Australia could have been all out for 50 because they only made 141 as it was and got bowled out in the 31st over. So both of those things are real concerns. When you think about it, like the 141, that's the first concern. The second concern is that one batsman got 94 of those. That's the second concern. And the third concern is that they got bowled out with 19 overs left of the innings. So all of that from an Australian team that is supposed to have the best facilities in the world, the best coaching structure in the world, and the best backroom in the world, and yet... Something like that can still happen against, and not trying to be derogatory about Zimbabwe, but an opposition of Zimbabwe's standard. So that was really piss poor. Now, it's at the time, and well, for all three games against Zimbabwe, I, you know, to me, Australia were a batsman short, and I'm sure I mentioned that on the previous episodes. 
When you've got Carey at four, Stoinis at five, uh, Cam Green at six, that's realistically only one of those three should be in that top six of the batting lineup for Australia. One should be at six, one should be at seven, and one of them probably misses out. Um, but as it was, once we got through Stephen Smith at number three, and this is not also to have a go at Alex Carey, who obviously proved in the second first game against New Zealand that he's good enough. But if you're looking at a batting lineup and you've got Steve Smith at three, and then you've got Carey, Stoinis, Green, Maxwell, Agar, if you're an opposition and you were bowling, you'd be thinking, we get two wickets here and we're into the tail. Now, the next thing that happened was that they allowed the youngish league spinner, Ryan Burl, to take five for 10 off three overs. And even though it was against the tail, it was at a stage of the innings where they were, Australia was falling apart, that's diabolical. He got Warner, he got Maxwell, and he got Agar, and they should all have done better and should not have played the shots they did to get out the way they did. I mean, Warner throwing his wicket away at 94 to hit it down to deep mid-wicket was just... And I know he'd done... You know, you can say, oh, he can be forgiven, he's got 94, he's got most of the runs for Australia, they were struggling. It doesn't really excuse the fact that he played that shot on 94 and played that shot in the situation where the team was 7 for 135 at the time, and then he got out and made it 8 for 135. That's just brainless batting, no matter how many he'd made before it. Now, when you look at the batting, Australia's batting, you can see the way that Zimbabwe then approached their chase, and they showed early on exactly the way to play the game. They put the ball into gaps, they took singles when they were there, and then they hit the odd boundary. And then even though they had a stumble you know, later on to, to be, give Australia a chance, their captain came out and led the way and anchored the chase to bring home the bacon and become the captain of the first Zimbabwe team to win a game in Australia against Australia. And he was pretty impressive in all three games, the captain. He's also the wicketkeeper. He obviously can bat, and his leadership was excellent in all those three games, no matter what was going on around him. So... I thought he was very impressive, and there were some other very impressive players in that team as well. Now, in regards to this, it's not the loss to Zimbabwe that is the concerning part for me. Like, in fact, it's it's great for world cricket that Zimbabwe has beaten Australia and done this because we need world cricket to get stronger. We need world cricket to be more competitive on all levels in order to keep the game growing and to keep people interested in the game. But it's the way that Australia's top border folded against bowling that was tight, but not threatening. I mean, it wasn't express. They got some movement. But our batsmen showed no patience or a desire to knuckle down and try and hold the fort after losing those two early wickets, and then a third, and then a fourth, and then a fifth. They batted as though they just felt that they would win because they were playing Zimbabwe. And they showed zero respect for the opposition and zero respect for the format they were playing. That it was a one-day game and that they were not playing a T20 game where they had to get as many runs as they could quickly. They refused to settle down, take 10 overs and 15 overs to get into the game and then adjust accordingly once they get to the 30-over mark. And... 
For Australia in one-day cricket, that was pretty concerning. So following that debacle, and that's exactly what it was, uh, with Zimbabwe cheering and going home with a win under their belts, Australia came in three days later to play New Zealand in three more games. And game one was played on Tuesday. And Australia, no doubt burned by their performance the previous game, won the toss and decided to bowl first. Now, again, we've got this situation where Australia feel as though they've got the wood over New Zealand and that they can win from no matter what position, which is pretty interesting given that New Zealand are ranked so highly in all three forms of the game and have had such a great record against pretty much every other nation in the world in all three forms of the game, but are still unable to beat Australia. Now, is that a mental thing from New Zealand as well as Australia, where Australia feel as though we can't lose to New Zealand, that we are the dominant country? Is it New Zealand feeling as though Australia are just too big a hurdle to, to clear, that they um, come under pressure and, and then find a way to lose games? Is it a combination of the two? Or is it all just absolute bullshit? Well, I don't think there's any way you could explain Australia's continued dominance over New Zealand except for the fact that it's, there's this mental hurdle for New Zealand and that Australia has this mental ability to just say that we can't lose to these guys uh, because we're Australia. You know, we're bigger than they are in cricket. Certainly not on the rugby field, although even that is being shown to be dis- uh, untrue at the present point in time. However, I shall not digress. Now, again, I say now a lot. I should stop saying that. It sounds terrible when you listen back to it. New Zealand was held to just 9 for 232 off their 50 overs, and that felt as though it was unders. Uh, Obviously, after 35 overs, I think New Zealand were about 150, and you would think that you could make 120 off your last 15. So 270 was pretty much the score that I thought they would be aiming for after 35 overs. So the fact that they only made 232 was partly uh, where the batting sort of got tied up, But Australia's bowling was terrific. And they were able to drag uh, their team back. Maxwell took four wickets after the uh, seam bowlers had done their job by just tying down the batsmen. And then Maxwell and Zampa came on and did a really good job towards the end. But then Australia went out to bat and they collapsed for the second game in a row. Now they were 4 for 27 and then 5 for 44 chasing this 233 to win and in the long run there was no way they could possibly win from that position zero way they could possibly win when uh, Marcus Stornis was dismissed at 5 for 44 it was the 12th over so there were still 38 overs to go but surely no one believed that Australia could possibly rule in that target now Marnus Labuschagne had been brought in to stiffen the batting And to me, that was a great idea. They really needed that extra batsman in the batting lineup. I don't agree with the fact that they then batted down to eight again with Green and Maxwell so low. But bringing Labuschagne in felt like the right idea and the right thing to do. But again, there was no respect from the Australians against the swinging ball. 
And they more or less, I don't know what it is. I don't know if, it, if it's a T20 mentality or whether it's just that they uh, have forgotten how to play one-day cricket and be able to build an innings realising that it's a 50-over game or they all feel they've got to get 350 to win a one-day game, that, that the pitch conditions don't care. Now, Trent Bolt was absolutely supreme in this innings in the last night. And I don't think there's much doubt that New Zealand probably erred by not playing Tim Southey as well. Uh, they played the two faster bowlers in Ferguson and Henry, who bowled well, but you just feel as though Southey at the other end from Bolt last night, uh, with his swing as well, could have had this game all over inside 20 overs. The batsmen, again, were not willing to get down and dirty. Steve Smith played a terribly lazy T20 waft outside off stump to play the ball onto the stumps. Dave Warner smacked the ball straight out of the middle, but to the only man on the entire leg side boundary. So just felt, oh, if I hit this ball well, it'll be four or six, and I don't have to worry about where the field is. That's how it felt, because he picked him right out when there was no one else out there. Marcus Stoinis showed zero defensive technique when he was comprehensively bowled. He wasn't even in the frame. The ball between bat and pad, it looked terrible. And again, showed that T20 mentality that maybe we don't need defence. Well, guess what? The ball's on the stumps coming in fast at about 140 clicks. Yeah, you do need a defensive shot. Now, Carey and Green played it much differently. And that's they had to, don't get me wrong. But immediately Cameron Green came out and played like he has been playing in test matches. Forward, great defence, uh, didn't look in any trouble and immediately made the bowling look a lot less dangerous than it had been seeming to the top order batsman. And Alex Carey came out and does what he does in one day cricket. He's Looks to be busy, but he's got a good defensive technique, and then he pushes the ball around, and if it's short or full, he creams it, and generally into the gap. So they pushed singles. Uh, They pushed the ball into the gap. They worked it off their hips. And then the ball stopped moving because it got old, and the white ball stopped moving, and suddenly all their hard work that they put in for about 10 to 15 overs paid off, and they were able to play their shots, and they reaped the rewards. The partnership was 158 and got Australia over 200 with just those, still those four wickets down. And it was a terrific partnership and New Zealand had run out of ideas by this stage. They'd more or less bowled out all their fast bowlers uh, in the hope that they could uh, get at least one more wicket. And And then Alex Carey, with a comfortable victory in sight, just completely lost his head and holed out straight to mid-wicket, when all he had to do was put it on the ground or into the gap or over the top. Either or, doesn't matter. And that caused mayhem because then Maxwell came out and played the way he's been told to play. And he perished by trying to hit a ball over the fence with his sixth ball that he could have just clipped off his toes for two along the ground and he was caught and then suddenly he was out. And then Stark came in, and Stark, you know, he probably wasn't even expecting to bat, and then suddenly he got a short one, he pushed it off his hip straight to the square leg, and Australia was eight down. And <laughs> suddenly New Zealand needed two wickets. 
and Australia still needed 26 runs. Now, 26 runs with only four down was going to be five, but suddenly they were eight down. Goodness gracious me. And then Cameron Green cramped up spectacularly, and given he'd been bowling and it was hot and he'd been batting for so long, it's probably not unusual. But that all at that stage, Australia looked like they were teetering. But Cameron Green kept his head, and better than yet than that, Adam Zampa kept his head and played terrifically well and got them home to win the game by two wickets with plenty of balls left, still about five overs left. But not without putting the game in peril unnecessarily once again. So Kerry made 85, terrific knock. Poor way to get out and poor time to get out, but terrific knock. Cameron Green, 89, not out. Superb. Deserved 100. Would have been great to see him score his first international century. And Zampa, 13, not out at the end, was unflappable. Did everything he had to do. Now, it's interesting that Bolt was absolutely unplayable early with the swing he was getting. But then when he came back for his second spell and the ball had stopped moving, he got carted. Kerry and Green just tore him apart, took him to the boundary. So hopefully, that is a very important lesson that has been learned by the Australian top order. That if you knuckle down and see out the hard times, you can then uh, plunder later on, as Kerry and Green did for Australia, to help get that win for Australia. So here are just a couple of extra points at the end of this little two-match series that we've had that Australia probably should have lost both games and have somehow got out with a victory last night. In both games, Australia's bowling has been really good. Uh, Against Zimbabwe, they fought hard and did their job and got seven wickets down before Zimbabwe passed their total. Uh, there was some discussion by the commentators on the game that they should have perhaps bowled different people at different times and they should have been bowling different lines or whatever it was. But it wasn't the bowlers' fault that they were only defending 141. If Australia had made a total of just 200, that would have been enough for Australia bowlers to secure a victory in that game. Now, against New Zealand, it was the same. They held that middle order in check after they'd done so well with uh, Williamson, and Latham uh, had done really well in getting New Zealand to a platform where they could uh, attack a really good total of what, like I said, I thought 270 was about what they were going to be looking at, and held them back to the point that then they brought Maxwell and Zampa on, and Maxwell was able to clean up the Kiwis by getting Williamson and then getting through the rest of the order and finishing with four wickets, which I think was his second best or best bowling for Australia in one-day internationals. And that meant that as they tried to push on to 250, they only managed 230-odd. Now, the bowling attack is so good. It was We still have Pat Cummins to come back into this team. He's being rested for this series. And Ashton Agar, who has always bowled well for Australia in ODIs in the recent times, is still there to be utilised as well. So the bowling stocks are in really good hands. We've got the bowling attack that we've got, plus the ability to use Cummins and the ability to use Agar. It's the batting that appears to be in a pickle. And in regards to that, let's just quickly look at 
two players and two points that I'd like to discuss because I think after this series is finished and after these next two games is a is a time when I can come on and do a program and talk about what I believe is where Australia should go with their one-day team. Now, of course, we all know that'll all be crap, but I'll do it anyway. So Glenn Maxwell is the first player I'd want to pull out. Now, he's been told to be a finisher, and that's why he's batting at number seven in his ODI team. Uh, They've decided through Aaron Finch that the way he bats in T20 cricket is exactly what Australia wants in one-day cricket, and they want him to be coming in sometime after the 35th over and finishing off the innings by batting like he does in T20 cricket. Now, that has worked on occasions already for Australia, and apparently Maxwell has said that he's now comfortable that he knows what his role is because he'd been moving from four to six to five to eight to three to seven, and he just didn't know what his role in this team was. So that's fine. If that's what his role is going to be, then I guess he's going to be batting at seven for the foreseeable future. I personally think that he's a better batsman than that, and he's shown that he's a better batsman than that. It leaves the Australian team in limbo a little bit, for me, with their batting. So in the first match against Zimbabwe, Maxwell came out and completed the game quickly while hitting three or four sixes, getting a really quick 30 off eight balls, and he was a hero. You beauty against Zimbabwe. Now in game three, he really needed to rebuild the innings with Warner when he came in, but he was caught and bowled just prodding away to the to the spinner, which is not really his go. So he was in a quandary as to what to do, and he couldn't really pull himself around. That's how it felt to me watching the game. Now, game one here against New Zealand, he again tried to get the home the team home quickly, and he was caught on the boundary for just two, when a more prudent innings would have brought the team home without the eventual danger of losing. Also, if he's going to be the finisher, if he's going to bat at seven, then he really has to contribute with the ball, which as he did last night, he has, he's done that, and he's bowled his 10 overs last night, and that's something that he's going to have to do on a more regular basis, because by him batting at seven, it rules out a genuine all-rounder being in that spot. That's not to say that Maxwell isn't a genuine all-rounder, but in recent times, he hasn't been bowling, and hasn't been utilised for his bowling, but if he's going to be the number seven batsman, he's going to have to be. Because a, a more genuine all-rounder, someone like, say, Cameron Green or even Ashton Agar, that's where seven is probably their spot. Certainly with Agar, it's a seven. Green has the ability to bat high, probably at six. But with Agar, he's not really going to get much of a go if Maxwell's going to be that number seven and then also bowling. Now, when Pat Cummins returns, seven is as low as the batters can go. Not at eight, as we've seen in this series, with... Cameron Green batting at eight and Maxwell batting at eight the other night. Because we will have Stark, Hazelwood, Zampa and Cummins as the eight, nine, ten and eleven in what you would expect, the full strength one day team. So the balance is already unsteady with Kerry batting as high as four and Stoinis also in that top six. And that's what concerns me with Australia's batting in one day cricket. I'm not sure we can continue to go with all of those three 
in that top six. To me, Kerry has always been a perfect number six and Green at seven. And that worked against New Zealand the other night. That To have that to happen, though, Maxwell would then have to bat five or the other two to move up to five and six and then Maxwell at seven. So either way, if that's going to be the way they go, Kerry, Green, Maxwell, five, six, seven. Someone in that top five is going to have to miss out. Now, we can all guess as to who I think might be that person. But that's where the batting, not the batting depth, but the the uh, the order of the batting there and the strength of the batting in that top five really needs to come to the fore. And I don't think that the top five we've got at the moment is working that way. Which brings us to Aaron Finch. <laughs> now look, he looks awful. Everyone knows he looks awful. He's And he's trying everything and nothing is working. Zimbabwe plucked him out three times and Trent Bolt absolutely mesmerised him last night. So every time he walks out, he's getting bowled or he's LBW or he's getting caught at keeper or slip. His captaincy at the moment is still not in question. It's generally still very good and his batting isn't affecting his captaincy. But that's been used in Finch's case for a very long time now, that he's the captain and so he needs to be in his team as the captain. And eventually it can't last. Now, Mark Taylor went through the same thing in the test team 25 years ago now, believe it or not. And there were a lot of people calling for his head until he was able to find a way out of it. But in one day cricket, it's so much more difficult to find a way to get consistency, especially at the top of the order, to make feel as though you are solid in that team. Now, he looks shot to me, absolutely shot. And given the form of both Travis Head and Ben McDermott when given their chance in Pakistan, and, well, the desire of everyone playing ODI cricket to be allowed to open the batting. I mean, Marnus Labashane's come out and said that he'd like to open the batting in one-day cricket. It really seems like it's a losing race. The age of the squad at the moment going into next year is something that also has to be considered. If you look at the fact that Warner is going to be 36, Finch is going to be 36, Smith's going to be 34, uh, Stoinis is going to be 34. Uh, Maxwell's going to be 33, 34. So all of these guys are getting up to that age where you start to think, well, how much longer have they got to go? And we need to start making decisions now, pretty much following this series, as to what the squad for next year's World Cup is going to look like. Australia's next ODI series is against England at home after the T20 World Cup. And that first squad must include everyone they are looking to push on to the ODI World Cup a year later. Now, if Finch isn't chosen, the big take from that is that whoever they pick at the, to replace him will not be any worse than what Finch has been for the last 6 months, 12 months, 18 months, 2 years. And I think that's something that needs to be taken under consideration. Because the danger is that the Aaron Finch makes a middling score in these final two games against New Zealand, which is then clung onto by the selectors and the commentators alike as being a return to form and a sign that he'll be, in quotes, back. So as I said, he'll be 36 in November. And his technical issues that have been there for most of his career 
are becoming more prominent. And whatever he does in these final two matches of this series, it's the long-term discussion that has to be had. Now, as we've said before on this podcast, there seems little doubt that Finch will lead Australia to the T20 World Cup to try and retain the trophy that he led them to last year. And that's fine. That's T20 cricket. You just hope that it all clicks for him. All things being equal, though, no matter what happens there, Aaron Finch would be doing his country a service if he was to announce his retirement from international cricket at the end of that tournament and give the ODI team some fresh air for the 12 months leading up to that World Cup in India in 2023. Rather than prolonging the elephant that's in the room and that would continue to dominate headlines leading up to that tournament. If he retires at the end of the T20 World Cup, not only does he go out as a white ball champion of the game over the last 15 years and all the service that he's done in captaining Australia and and the, the great runs that he has made in his career, but he also will give the team, the one-day team, the fresh start that it needs without a selector having to make the call for him. That's all for today's edition of the Almanac Report. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll come back and check out further episodes down the track, right here on the podcast, Thoughts for the Metal Cabin. You have been listening to a Metal Cavern production.